Well, thank you so much, Dr. K, for joining me today. Super excited to, to talk about you know your journey in starting Vision Spring and, and all it's doing for, you know for the world. And you know, I care as as you can see, I have, I have glasses on. It's a problem everywhere, but uh, you know, in the in developed world, it's sort of easy for us to get get the things that we need, right, to kind of get through the day to day things. Um, so before we get into what Vision Spring is, what it's doing for the world globally, talk about that that journey to get to that point, what was the catalyst and inspiration to start Vision Spring? Yeah, thanks, Grant. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Look forward to our conversation. The, the journey was a relatively long one. So if you want to interject during my uh, sure. story, uh, if it's getting too long, you just let me know, but I'll try to keep it uh, precise uh, because the journey started almost 40 years ago for me when I was in my early 20s. Now I'm in my early 60s. And the way that I think about it is that there's really three components to the journey. One is the finding my purpose and meaning. Two is finding the my calling, which is a little bit different, and I'll explain that. And then three is how to put that calling into the world and to actually execute on that. The purpose and meaning part of the journey started when I was again, 23 years old. At that time, I was really spending most of my time, at least free time, as a mountaineer. I used to climb mountains Hmm. all over the world. And I was in the northern part of Alaska in the Brooks Range, and I was climbing a mountain. It was a pretty nasty day. The wind was at my face. The rain was slashing. And as I got to the top of the mountain, I had one of those sort of existential moments where I became both nothing and everything at the same time. And Hmm. the world was sort of telling me that uh, I was insignificant, I was dust in the wind, but that Hmm. also I was part of this greater whole. And the part of that message that really bugged me was the issue that, or the fact that I was sort of dust in the wind. And I remember literally screaming at the wind saying that I mattered, but I didn't have any idea how or why. And I came down that mountain with the strong conviction that no matter what I did professionally, I wanted the work to have purpose and meaning. Uh, And that's about as far as I got. I didn't know what that was going to be. Fast forward six months, I had enrolled in optometry school to become an eye doctor. Mm. And to be frank, I was kind of depressed because I wasn't sure I made the right choice. Uh, As someone who liked being in the northern reaches of Alaska with open vistas and blue skies, um, (laughs) the idea of being in a dark room without windows for the rest of my life kind of was a bit daunting. And uh, a few months into school, a group of students came in to talk to us uh, representing an organization called VOSH, Volunteer Optometric Services to Humanity. And it was a group Mm. that brought eye care to underserved people across the world. And it felt like at that moment, there was like someone punching a hole in the wall and opening a window of light to say, wow, that's something that really resonated with me. So I worked really hard and was invited on a trip to go to rural Mexico. And uh, there we were approaching the clinic that was a temporary clinic that we set up. And there was a line of people, 2,000 people long, wrapping around this clinic. It was sort of like the first iPhone had come out or something like that. Uh, And most of the people were indigenous uh, folks who had never received a pair, uh, who had never received any eye care. And I sat down in my place and my first patient was a seven-year-old boy. And what made him unique was that he was from the School for the Blind. So he thought he was blind and everyone else thought he was blind. And when we looked at his eyes, we recognized he wasn't blind. He just needed a really, really strong pair of eyeglasses. And so I went into our library of 5,000 pair of glasses that we brought. 
and I found a pair that was almost exactly his match. For your listeners who know their prescriptions, it might be a minus two or four or eight. This boy was a minus 20. So he literally was blind, but never had his vision corrected. I put that pair of glasses on his face, and it was a moment that changed Mm. both of our lives. Uh, I like to say I gave him his vision, and he gave me mine. Uh, And I love the quote that Mark Twain says that the two most important days of your life are the day that you're born and the day that you find out why. And that Mm. was the day that I found out why. And that's when I sort of found my calling, which was attached to that search for meaning and purpose. And, um, you know, in my book, which is entitled Dare to Matter, my Dare to Matter moment was up in Alaska. But one of the things I talk about in that book is the notion of walking through the world with a prepared heart, meaning Mm. that if you're looking for having a life of purpose and meaning, you have to be sort of like an antenna. Uh, You have to be open to it. Mm -hmm. And I walked into that clinic with a prepared heart, not knowing what my purpose or what my calling would be. But because I was prepared, it struck me like a lightning bolt. If I didn't have a prepared heart, I would have come back and I would have told that cool story to my parents and my friends, but that would have been it. It wouldn't have fundamentally changed the trajectory of my life. Um, And so that was a moment that I started pursuing my calling. Now I can get into the translation of how to take a calling and turn it into action and make something actually happen, which is about a 17-year journey from that moment to the time I founded Vision Spring. And so, but before I do wow. that, I want to pause. So I'm just not talking at you. We're yeah, no. Conversation, I, but I, I, that would be the sort of the next chapter, if you will, of the story. I, that was going to be my next question is, is when you, you know, you, you get struck by that lightning, so to speak, right? You get, you get kind of punched in the head or, or that's that second part of the, of the t- twin quote, you, you realize, you know, why you're here, why you were born, right? It's, what do you do with that? What do you do with that that newfound inspiration and information you have in your life? It's like you kind of know what you want to do, but then it's it's like it's like a it's like a company, a startup, or a nonprofit. Like it's you got an idea, right? Or you have some type of calling, but the execution on it is the hardest thing you'll actually ever do in your life is actually putting it into practice. After that, you know, when you have that sort of remarkable moment in your life, you know, what are the next steps, right? Are you still there for a few more days? Do do you go home after that and? assess everything and, and, and you take a total life change and, and, and start Vision Spring next month, right? What, what was that? What were those actions like right after that? Yeah, that that is, that's where the rubber hits the road, right? Yeah. And yeah. because a lot of people can have those moments, but not quite know how to translate it into action and impact. It's a, This part of the story is sort of like a job interview where mm. in retrospect, your life makes perfect sense and you can tell a nice tale. Um, but it sort of unfolded a little bit differently, somewhat fortuitously, but with the a North Star. And so mm-hmm. the way that I think of a calling is that it puts in front of you a clear North Star of where you want to get. And so the two things I knew was that I want my existential purpose and meaning was important to me. I wanted to have a life that had that. And that this calling of being called to be the eyeglass guy was a real manifestation of living into purpose and meaning. But how to get there, that was not clear yet. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it was a North Star, right? It gave me sort of a clear sense of where I was trying to get. And you'll find this with a lot of social entrepreneurs who have started organizations that have become 
quite well known in our space, is that the finding of that their organization that ends up having the impact is often not their first rodeo. They've done a lot of things that have prepared the groundwork for them to make the kind of impact that they ultimately do through their organizations. And I'm certainly no different. And so the way that uh, there were a couple of key chapters of learning lessons that were instrumental to and skills that were instrumental for me to bring Vision Spring into the world. Step one was that I recognized my purpose and calling. Step two is I realized that the organization I was working with that was setting up clinics in far off lands and taking donated products and taking volunteers and then next year going to a different place and doing the same thing was not the smartest model. So I started to pursue like, there must be a better way to solve this problem. And I found out about an eye hospital in India called the Aravind Eye Hospital. And I wrote away hmm. to the founder of that hospital, a man named Dr. Venkataswamy, who was really one of the earliest uh, social entrepreneurs, even before that term was coined, he was doing this. And he was a master of providing cataract services, cataract surgery services, which is the leading cause of blindness in the world uh, at a mass scale. And I went to Aravind and spent a year with learning from him and his team. And he was a mentor, of early mentor of mine. Wow. And he taught me about two things. One is something called compassionate capitalism, which is the idea is that you can use business practices and principles to affect social change. And two is the concept of cross-subsidization. In other words, charge people who have the capacity to pay a fair price, but a price. And then those people who can't pay either as much or at all provide those services at a reduced cost or a free cost. Those lessons were incredibly instrumental for sort of thinking about what ultimately became Vision Spring. He, as a mentor of mine, sort of said to me toward the end, you should try to do for glasses what I've done for cataract surgery. And, <laughs> and this was, I was 28 years old at that time. Um, so about four or five years after that seven-year-old boy moment, but I wasn't quite ready. Um, I didn't feel that that was quite what I was ready to do. My next chapter after, real, real quick yeah, before before you move on, what how'd you have that that sense of you weren't ready yet, right? Because that's a, I mean that that sort of self awareness that's pretty young, I think, to have that that sort of self awareness. I, I know I, I tend to dive into things and to have that self awareness of you know what I'm not quite ready yet. Did you take time to think about it? Like okay, maybe this is the time, or you knew right away that hey, this is I'm not quite ready to to do that. Well, don't be too impressed. I think the reason that uh, I wasn't ready was more to do with fear and uh, mm -hmm. the fact that that issue area of uncorrected vision that required glasses as its um, correction was not really on the radar screen in the global public health or global okay. development issue area. There was no attention to it. There were no resources to it. It just wasn't where the action was. And so as sure. a 27, eight-year-old guy who wanted to be where the action was, I went to where the action was and the resources were. And that was with a disease called river blindness, which is a infectious mm -hmm. disease that little baby worms get into the eyes. I hate to gross out your listeners, sure. but it's one of the leading causes of uh, vision suffering and and impairment in Africa, or at least it was 30 years ago when I was working on it. It's been a very successful public health intervention. But there, with this disease of river blindness, 
my goal or my job essentially was to identify where the disease was most endemic and to set off mass set up mass distribution campaigns of getting that pill, that medicine that was effective in treating the disease or preventing the disease into millions of people's mouths. And so there I learned all about how to distribute health products and services to mm -hmm. people who lived at the end of the road and to do it in a way that was as low cost as possible and as sustainable as possible. And so that was a also a key group of lessons that I learned in addition to the cap, uh, compassionate capitalism and cross-subsidization model. Here I learned about distribution and distributing useful health products and services to people who normally couldn't get them. So that was sort of another big chapter of learning. And I did that for eight years. Uh, I was the head of R Helen Keller's River Blindness Program for that time. And then I moved on from that to collect another key lesson, um, which was understanding policy and power. Mm. And and mm. by that, I mean that uh, I kind of came to the recognition in my work in river blindness after eight years that um, this was during the rise of AIDS and tuberculosis and malaria and the reemergence of those diseases, that if we just stayed in the health sphere, we weren't going to get the kind of political might and will and the resources needed to solve problems, that we needed to figure out how to interject health issues onto the global development agenda, onto the foreign policy agenda of the people mm -hmm. who actually held power, which were prime ministers, presidents, finance ministers, and to think about health not as just a health issue, but as a national security issue, as an economic development issue, and as an enlightened self-interest yep. leadership kind of issue. And so that took me to work at a foreign policy think tank uh, called the Council on Foreign Relations, which historically hadn't had any work in the health sphere. And I kind of was able to uh, convince the president of the Council on Foreign Relations at the time, a gentleman named Les Gelb, that this issue deserved uh, attention at his institution and spent five years writing white papers, making the case of why health mattered to U.S. foreign policy. And that's where I learned about policy and I learned about power. I learned about how the U.S. government worked uh, in, in in terms of setting priorities, and it was an incredibly important set of uh, of learnings uh, in my life. So th that was the sort of the next chapter, and then the final chapter and the final building block that I ended up building was understanding business because I didn't have any business background. Uh, and before I started a, yeah. a business selling eyeglasses, frankly, I didn't know the difference between wholesale and retail. I mean, I didn't know anything about business, <laughs> so. After that, I started to move back to the eyeglass world. And I started a business called Skojo, which was a social enterprise business. It was a for-profit business that had a nonprofit arm called the Skojo Foundation. And the concept was that consumers in America uh, had two choices when it came to reading glasses. The ugly ones that cost $10 that at that time were next to the adult diapers in the pharmacy. They were, you know, just not res respected at all. Um, yeah. And... <laughs> then you had to go to the other way. You had to go to an optical store and buy a nice pair of glasses, but that was like three hundred dollars. So pe there was yeah, nothing was crazy, between ten dollars and three hundred dollars. Right. So we created Skojo to bring a fashion-forward pair of uh, reading glasses to the markets at fifty-dollar price point, so that men and women who were in their early forties who felt good and young and healthy didn't have to wear ugly glasses. Uh, but it was not. But it was affordable, so they could buy a couple pair. And that five percent of the pre-tax profits of those sales went to Skojo Foundation which was working on the concept of 
what we called our Vision Entrepreneur Program, where we were training women to start small businesses selling eyeglasses to their neighbors. Long story short. When, when was this? When was so this, the, the, this was, we started uh, Scojo in 2001. Wow. And um, and so, Sco- so this is really before the one for one movement and kind of before yes. Tom took off and, and, you know, sort of the the industry sort of even knew what the word was. Yes. You know, and and, and so my, yeah. my second employee at that foundation called Scojo Foundation is a guy named Neil Blumenthal, who you may know of as Warby the Parker. founder of Warby Parker. And <laughs> wow. so that's how Vision Spring and Warby Parker have a close relationship yep. because Neil worked at Scojo Foundation for five years prior to going to Wharton Business School and launching Warby Parker. Wow. So it was in the early days of all of that kind of stuff. And for various reasons, um, my business partner and I had different ideas about how to build the business. And so we ended up selling it to a third party. But I retained uh, control, if you will, of the foundation part. And we renamed Scojo Foundation Vision Spring. And that was, um, and so Vision Spring is actually the same as Scojo Foundation, but we rebranded and, and, and um, continued the work under the rubric of Vision Spring. So that's sort of the full backstory. And again, sort of all of the pieces of the puzzle, sort of learning about compassionate capitalism and and uh, cross-subsidization, learning about distribution to people at the end of the road, learning about how policy and power works, learning about business. And then all of that sort of gave me, if you will, the muscle to really bring Vision Spring into the world. Amazing. I want to kind of go off into two things, but while we're still on it, did, did Neil leave to decide to go start Warby Parker? And were you guys in close contact that were they already sort of off the ground when you know you ch- changed the name to Vision Spring and you had that that partner that was kind of already doing doing sales right on the commercial side to then sort of donate I, I forget what it was it was donating glasses back or donating proceeds back to Vision Spring where they can go do their work I, I guess what was that that relationship like after he left to go do that and then did Vision Spring did you guys I guess did you guys talk about it right before he went and started Warby Parker were you sort of a, a ear to, to talk about this this with yeah so the way that worked was as follows from my perspective was that um, you know a- after five years of working at Vision Spring Neil wanted to um, he, he recognized like a lot of people who work for Vision Spring came yeah. to Vision Spring thinking they were going to study uh, social work or uh, or social entrepreneurship. But a lot of people ended up going from Vision Spring to business school because they started to recognize huh. that um, business principles and principles and practices could be used for making a difference in the world. And and business skills were very well suited for that. So so Neil went back to, to business school and I think he went to business school just because it was for him the right next step in his life. But fortuitously, he met Dave and Jeff and Andy, who are his partners at uh, at Wharton, and they started to talk about this idea of um, of eyeglasses because uh, Dave uh, had been on a trip to Africa and he lost his glasses and. It was too expensive for him to uh, replace them. So they started to think it's ridiculous that glasses should cost so much. And there was Neil, who had spent the last five years understanding how to uh, make glasses a lot less expensive. Because when he was sourcing our glasses, he couldn't help but note that the glasses that were being made for our work were on the same line as glasses that were being made for Calvin Klein and all and Armani and all the big brands. Right. And there wasn't really that much yeah. different. And the margin structure was wildly different. And so 
given his background and given this call from these other partners, they wanted to make sure that Warby was a company that not only was wildly profitable, uh, but was also one that um, gave back to the world and had a a greater mission and purpose to it. And so during that time, uh, I was in close touch with, uh, with Dave and Neil and Jeff in particular, those three, as they started to think this through. And Vision Spring was a natural conduit for uh, their what became their one-for-one one model. And for every pair of glasses that they sell, they donate a certain amount of money to Vision Spring to distribute a pair of glasses. Now, it's not, the, it's not a Warby Parker pair of glasses. It's glasses that are more culturally sure. appropriate for our markets. And I think about 80% of their one-for-one model still goes through Vision Spring to this day. They have other partners as well, but uh, the majority of it goes through Vision wow. Spring. Amazing. So we, we, we mentioned Vision Spring and obviously a lot of stuff that you know you did, but to give a really you know a broad overview of actually what the organization does right you have different programs and different things but like when somebody asks you like what what does vision spring you know do how do you explain it to them well um in a number of different ways uh, our, our mission is to increase lifelong earning learning safety mm-hmm. and well-being through eyeglasses for people vulnerable to poverty uh so that's our overall mission and we do that in a number of different ways we have uh two broad arms to our work. One is our B2B program, our business-to-business program, our institutional partners, mostly eye hospitals, but others, where we're acting essentially as a wholesaler, um, where we're providing those entities like hospitals and NGOs with a a predictable, high-quality supply chain of glasses. Uh, The other part of our businesses are uh, our B2C, our our business-to-consumer we call our vision access programs. And we have three essential programs there, something called C to Earn, C to Learn, and C to Be Safe. Our C to Earn program has a couple of different components, but it's the idea where we're really focusing on people who are in the workforce um, and who need reading glasses to see better up close so that they can continue their livelihoods and be more productive. Uh, we, we have something Amazing. called our Reading Glass for Improved Livelihood program, which we started in Bangladesh. Our partner there is BRAC. And I was recently, uh, in January, I was in, um, in Bangladesh uh, celebrating with uh, Ella and uh, our partners in Bangladesh. Our two millionth person served through that program. A two million wow. pair of glasses have gotten into the, on, onto the noses, if you will, of uh, people throughout Bangladesh through that program. We also have something called our Clear Vision Workplace Program as part of our C to Earn model, where we go into factories and workplaces, um, and we're in partnership with corporations and other brands in mostly India, Bangladesh, and Vietnam, where we make sure that people who are working in factories and farms who need up-close vision to be productive, have access to them. And so we have partners like Levi Strauss and West Elm and VF and Target uh, and others to go into their factories and make sure that the men and women working in those factories can see to be productive and continue their livelihoods. And then we have our... C to Earn, which is more of like a community, or a third part of the C to Earn is our more community-based programs where we'll go into rural areas and slums and work with um, 
uh, other kinds of uh, CSR partners to set up eye clinics and provide glasses. So that's our C to Earn. Then we have a C to Learn program, which is, um, as the name implies, we go into schools and we make sure that uh, our school-based programs are providing uh, affordable and culturally appropriate and aspirational glasses to children so that they can learn better. And there's many studies that show that a kid who sees better learns better, which makes a lot of sense. I don't think that's uh, too complicated to understand. And then our last is our C to be safe program, where we work with drivers and uh, allied transportation workers across mostly India, where we make sure that people who are behind the big 18 wheelers are seeing mm, so yeah. that not only they can be safe, but other people can be safe. We've done some studies that, that are kind of scary that show a very significant portion yeah. of the driving force in the world are visually impaired and, and need glasses. So those those are some of the ways in which we, we do our work. Wow. You mentioned it. I kind of want to give, you mentioned cataracts as sort of the leading cause of, <laughs> of blindness in the world or, or, or once was, I'm not sure if it, this statistic is still valid, but just the scope of of the issue that we're talking about, whether it's sort of blindness or just vision impaired at a certain level that need, you know, support. What does the scope of that look like? And, and I mean, talk at a global scale, I mean, even in America, right? I mean, there's a lot of the areas where, you know, people just don't, don't do it. They don't have insurance. It's still expensive, right? You still need to get, you know, an eye appointment, all these different things. I guess, what are some of the statistics or, or things that kind of still surprise you about vision, around the world vision impairment. Well, what's kind of remarkable and a little bit crazy is that even though glasses were invented over 700 years ago, still a huge percentage of people in the world who need them don't have them. And it is the largest mm. disability in the world. So there are wow. a billion people in the world who are either visually impaired or blind because they don't have eyeglasses. So eyeglasses are the leading cause of visual impairment, which is not quite as severe as blindness, but it's still reduces someone's ability yeah. to function. And it's the second leading cause of blindness behind cataracts. So cataracts are still the leading cause of blindness. But the lack of eyeglasses is the leading cause of visual impairment and blindness combined. And it's like almost 10 times more than cataracts when you, when you look at the visual impairment wow. and blindness together. So it's a big problem. And it's a problem that's actually growing because of uh, the development of society with children who are spending more time indoors, spending more time looking at their devices. Uh, the rate of myopia is increasing significantly. That's nearsightedness and inability to see in the distance is growing significantly. And people predict, uh, and the research shows, that about half the people in the world will be nearsighted uh, by the year 2050. And wow. the, near, the near vision problem is also growing because people are getting older. And so mm, this is yeah. not a, pro a right. problem that if left unattended is going to go away on its own. In fact, it needs to be addressed even more and more and will reduce productivity and learning even more in the future if it's not uh, attended to. Yeah, you mentioned the the economic toll it could take on a community, you know, a society, a, a country even, right? If it, you know, at scale, you know, that would affect the economic output of a population, right? If they can't can't do much anything, you know, for from work wise, especially now, a lot of a lot of work. Well, more and more so, the work is going towards the computer, right? Working, working on on a computer in some form or fashion. I guess how has how has it progressed from a government or policy standpoint, where this is higher higher on the scale of of issues that need to be recognized and and invested in 
you know, at a government or policy level from, from any part of the world, but specifically perhaps a developing world where it's, where it's a little bit more of an, of an issue. Yeah. Um, important uh, topic to address here. I think the first thing to, to note is that we have some very well-designed and published in peer-reviewed journals, research randomized controlled trials that show that if a person needs a pair of glasses and gets them, good things happen. Uh, on the mm. work front, on the prosperity front, on the productivity front, we did a study called PROSPER, uh, and now we're about to do PROSPER 2, uh, but PROSPER 1, which has been published in Lancet, which is uh, a very well-known journal showed that if a person needs a pair of glasses and gets them, and these were done, um, the study was done on a farm. It wasn't even done in a factory. It was done in a tea plantation in Assam, India. And that the tea planters mm. who got the glasses and who needed them had an increase in productivity of 22% compared to those who didn't. Uh, and even wow. more powerfully, the women, uh, mostly the planters were women, who got who were 50 years or older, their productivity increased by 32%. And so I always say like, what other intervention do we know that for about a dollar, which is the pair of glasses right. costs about a dollar, can increase someone's productivity by a third for the next 20 years of their life. You know, so it's one of these really kind of miracle uh, potential interventions. So with studies like Prosper, and we're doing another one called Thrive in Bangladesh, where we're looking at a broader uh, scope of uh, livelihoods beyond just uh, farmers and tea pickers. Uh, and the, re the research at Thrive, which is um, re revealing something quite similar, that we're actually seeing about a 33% increase in um, productivity and about 38% of the people who got the glasses moved into a higher quartile of earnings. So it's being reproduced in other settings as well with broader groups of people. And so with those kinds of results, we are now in a position to go to ministries of finance and health and education right. and and uh, work with industry and others to sort of say, hey, it's time to really start to to look at this. A, a another part of my career trajectory is in addition to st starting Vision Spring, I co-founded an organization called iLiance, which is more of a multi-stakeholder effort where we bring companies and governments and civil society together to try to get more attention to this issue area and get it onto the agendas of governments. And with that kind of research that Vision Spring and others have produced, it makes it easier to go into ministries of health and education yeah. and, and make the case. And so we have seen some significant uptake for this idea within governments in Africa and Asia. And so it's early on. Uh, we're still making the case. It's still not the most well-recognized issue area, but compared to what we were doing 20 years ago when I started Vision Spring, we're yeah. in a whole different area. We're also seeing support from the World Health Organization uh, with some new edicts to include uncorrected vision from glasses as part of what they're going to be measuring and asking governments to measure and having goals set to increase that coverage. An additional 40% is, is sort of the goal for the next... I think 2030. So WHO is getting on board. National governments are getting on board. Bigger institutions like the World Bank and others are starting to pay attention. So we've got some nice momentum here, uh, albeit it's still relatively early on in the game. We mentioned early on that the 2,000 people standing, you know, in line 
you know, early early in your journey. We mentioned the the, the billion people and, and the numbers are, are big, right? Who, who sort of need assistance in, in this area. But I guess the one thing that, that I've noticed just throughout my life and everybody that I deal with, just in my family or friends, a lot of people have glasses. Everybody kind of has a different prescription. Everybody's eyes yeah. are different. So this to me is, is the hardest part about scaling something like this is sort of that it's such a one-on-one thing. Is there, from from your perspective, knowing more than obviously me or a lot of people that I talk to, is there one general sort of prescription that can be given at a mass scale, like early on to help certain people kind of get, whether they can barely see to at least see a little bit, right? Rather than having to get, go in, get like a, you know, go to an office and get that that office visit where that takes time, right? It, it just takes a lot of a lot of different variables to to get those stationary things in villages and or what cities across the world where you can just hey a thousand glasses into a village like can help ninety percent. As far as the scale, is there a quicker is there a quick way to do it besides sort of the one on one that we're all used to? Well, not surprising, Grant. Uh, you're you're. You have an entrepreneurial mindset, just the framing of that question, right? Like, how, how can we get to this and how can we solve it in the simplest way? Um, the, the good news is that when we talk about the billion people who need glasses, the majority of those billion people are people who need just the ready-made reading glasses. And as you know, right. if you okay. go into a pharmacy in anywhere in the United States, you'll see a rack of those glasses and there's right. only like four or five prescriptions, plus one, plus 150, plus two, so forth. So yeah. the skew proliferation is reduced significantly by focusing on that part of the problem. So Vision Spring, when it was founded, uh, when I founded it 20 years ago, it was really focusing on just the ready-made reading glass component because it was this, it was like taking care of 80% of the problem with five prescriptions. And it was Amazing. also the part of the equation that was most related to productivity. Um, so it was sort of our, our point of the arrow right? Where we could get a huge yeah. bang for the buck. And over time, it became uh, clear that we needed also, if we're going to be providing that service, it was clear that we needed to also provide the service for prescription glasses. Now, when you start dealing with prescription glasses, there are literally potentially over a million S- SKUs, uh, like you were sort of mentioning. Crazy. But what we've done is we've created some a product uh, called Poppin' Glasses, where we reduce mm. those literally millions of SKUs to just a couple of dozen prescriptions. And here again, those Mm. few dozen prescriptions can take care of about 80% of the other 20% of the problem. So let's say 80% of the problem is reading glasses, Mm. 20% are prescription glasses. 80% of that 20% can be taken care of to a level that would be sufficient to drive legally in the United States uh, by a, a couple, wow. just a couple dozen pair of glasses and so we um, uh, of prescriptions. And so we've created these popping glasses where we have those gla- those lenses available and we have frames that they fit in. And so when we go to a factory, we can pop those in and take care of between the reading glasses and those o- over 90% of the need. Now, there are some people who fall outside of that. So we customize those glasses yeah. in our labs in India, for instance, or in Bangladesh. And we custom make those glasses for the the consumer, but the v- majority of it can be done now off the shelf, either with reading glasses or our popping glasses. And uh, just to again talk about scale, we've reached about 10 million people. Actually, is 
part of my wow. um, journey to India and Bangladesh in January. We were not only celebrating the 2 million people served through the Reading Glass for Improved Livelihood program, but we were celebrating our 10 millionth customer across the world. And now we have uh, aspirations to go far, far beyond that. Wow. And this has been amazing. I, I want to I want to end on, you know, a little bit about the future. And, you know, now you, you kind of have a couple decades under under your belt here and doing some, some phenomenal work. What inspires you about the next decade? And maybe what are some of the goals and successes that you and the team want to achieve in, in that time right. span? And what's possible? Well, I, th- I think um, a, a couple of things I'll say. One is that it's super important for an entrepreneur to know when he or she uh, is in their sweet spot and are working within their mm. superpowers. And I think my superpower has more to do with seeing a problem or an injustice that was not being corrected in the world, making the case for why it needed to be solved, bringing people like Neil and others along for the ride, inspiring donors that we could make a big impact by doing this and building an organization to a certain level. But it became clear to me around 10 years in that my superpower was not massive scaling of the organization. And so um, that's when we uh, brought in Ella Goodwin, who is our existing CEO. She's been with us for about eight years. And her superpower is as as a builder. And so part of the vision is to make sure, as Jim Collins would say, getting the right people on the bus and putting them in the right seat. And so we have fantastic builders, both at our headquarters within our CEO, at our India office through Anshu Taneja, who's been with us for 10 years building that out. Uh, And the list goes on. We have over 300 people on our team now, and they are primed to build. And so we've got a great strategy. We've got a great brand. We've got great uh, donor partners. We've got a good business model. So all of those things are sort of in place. When I was in India in January and meeting with the team, um, I was reflecting that uh, 20 years ago when I started Vision Spring, I was 40. Now I'm a little over 60. And we had reached our 10 millionth customer. And I sort of held out a vision of aspiration to the team to say, when I come back when I'm 80, um, obviously, I'll be there between now and now when I'm 80. But when I'm standing here talking to all of you when I'm 80 years old, I see no reason why we shouldn't be celebrating our 100 millionth person. And mm. I, I think that's entirely possible given the leadership we've brought together and the brand we've built and the uh, execution capacity of the organization. So I'm looking forward to Vision Spring being an important part, not the only part, but an important part of solving this billion-person problem across the world within a generation of time. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Casolo. This has been an uh, amazing conversation. Um, I, I'm uh, always you know, inspired when I have people on uh, to talk about you know, their life's work you know, and, and their, their, their journey. It's, uh, it inspires me, and I know it, it's going to inspire others. And I think that a life's work is, is always really amazing when you like you said earlier, when it kind of just it kind of just smacks you in your face a little bit, but you did something about it, right? Which I think is the most. It, I mean, that's the, the tip of the hat. Really goes to that because, like we said before, executing on a dream or an idea is, is so difficult to do, you know. And, and and you're doing it, and by the time, like you said, you're you're 80 or shoot, my my grandma's birthday was yesterday. She oh, just wow. turned 92. So I mean. There's just so there's so much so much to go here, and I think, like you said, I mean, 
by the time you're 80 and 100 million is is incredibly possible. Then you can retire, and, and then you can then you can <laughs> <laughs> you can live out the next 20 years till you're 100 and uh, talk to the next group of social entrepreneurs that that come along and ask for your advice. I appreciate so much for taking the time. Um, best of luck to you and the team for for the next. Well, years. I, I thank you very much, Grant. Uh, you know, as they say, vision without execution is hallucination. And uh, hopefully we're not hallucinating. Mm. Um, I don't think we are. Um, I appreciate you and I appreciate this platform to tell the Vision Spring story and encourage your listeners to uh, learn more about Vision Spring going to our website, uh, visionspring.org. And uh, we'd love to hear from you.